Hello and welcome to Mentor Dialogue, episode number 245. Today is Sunday the 20th of August 2017 and this interview is with Christopher Lockhead who is the co-author of Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. Christopher is also the co-host of the podcast Legends and Losers and having been a CMO of three publicly traded companies and an entrepreneur, Christopher certainly is loaded in experience. Fast Company Magazine refers to him as the human exclamation point, and the marketing journal called him one of the best minds in marketing. In this scintillating chat with Christopher, we talk about the role of the CMO, what does it take to carve out your winning strategy, how to create a category killer, and the future of marketing. them into Dialogue Podcast, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset, that's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T.com, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick and enjoy the show. Christopher Lockhead, so a, a man with a passion, uh, an author, podcaster, and uh, an all-around pirate, also, uh, kind of a legend of your of your own. Tell us, Christopher, in your own words, how you describe yourself and what's your mindset. Welcome to the show. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, my mindset is one of uh, I wake up every day and um, you know I'm just absolutely thankful that uh, my life is my life. Uh, my life is a dream come true. Um, so that's my mindset. And then uh, you want to know how I would describe myself? Yeah. Um. Well, from a business perspective, you know, I could give you the short resume, um, but really, I, 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 today I'm somebody who uh, is retired, and I'm somebody for whom um, I'm very committed to entrepreneurship uh, in the United States and around the world. And the reason for that, Minter, is um, I'm somebody for whom uh, entrepreneurship is not a theoretical discussion, and we hear a lot about what you might think of Minter as big E entrepreneurs. So a couple of legendary young people from Stanford write some kind of a super carbodingulator algorithm thing and they raise two hundred million dollars on Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley and they go public and they become, you know, pick your company, Google, Facebook, Oracle, Cisco, et cetera, et cetera. And those entrepreneurs are very, very celebrated, as they should be. And I've spent the better part of thirty years in that world. But when I first started, I wasn't that guy at all. I got thrown out of school at 18 for being stupid, and my options in life, Minter, were uh, shave guys' balls for a living or start a company. I was working part-time as an orderly. Uh, my mom had gotten me this job, and so I was either going to be an orderly for the rest of my life or, or figure out something. And with no money, no education, no relationships, no contacts, no nothing, uh, me and my friend Jack started um, our first business. And so I guess my point is, there are entrepreneurs for whom entrepreneurship is a way up in life, and that's great. And if Mark Zuckerberg fails at Facebook, uh, nobody misses a meal. And, um, and so uh, you might think of those kinds of entrepreneurs as big E entrepreneurs, and I think they're legendary and they're awesome, and I know many of them and, and, and so forth. I'm what you might think of, Minter, as a small E entrepreneur because if I don't close the sale when I first start my – first business, um, the landlady throws me out because uh, my good looks don't cut it uh, in lieu of the rent check. Mm -hmm. And so 
that's I have a huge passion around entrepreneurship. Point A. Point B. Last year in uh, about March or April, Minter, just before uh, my book Play Bigger was coming out, uh, I read this article that stopped me dead in my tracks in the Wall Street Journal. The headline in the article said that crisis in American entrepreneurship. And as I saw that title, I thought, what are you talking about? Mm. You know, living very close to Silicon Valley and having worked in Silicon Valley for over 20 years, um, it feels like everybody and their brother is an entrepreneur. Well, it turns out, according to MIT and the Brookings Institute, that more companies die every year in the United States of America than are, 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 are created. And we are at the lowest level of entrepreneurship in record for the United States. And, and that's not okay because entrepreneurs build our country and world. I'm not mm-hmm. saying there aren't other professions that aren't important for building our country and world. Of course there are. But entrepreneurs bring something very unique. Every legendary product or service that we love that makes a difference to us either you know, for fun reasons, for medical reasons, and for everything in between exists because a legendary innovator or entrepreneur was able to deliver the right company, the right product, and the right category at the right time and ultimately make a difference in the world. And the degree to which that stops, you know, we have a problem. That's kind of point A. And point B for other people like myself who grew up on the island of misfit toys, who had very few options, I didn't even know the word entrepreneur mentor. Yeah. And when I when I learned it, I, I thought it was a highfalutin word for unemployed. <laughs> and That's so true. we live at a time and in a place in the Western world, and particularly in America, where we have extraordinary opportunities to do whatever we want. There is nobody that stops us from designing a legendary life and a legendary business, and yet entrepreneurship is at an all-time low. And so I think it behooves those of us who've had success. Um, you know, there's this great, I don't know if you saw this, Kevin Spacey said um, this, and I'll paraphrase, but he said something like, if you're lucky enough to have made it to the top, then you should send the elevator back down. Yeah. And so I'm 49 years old. I retired for the second or third time, depending on how you want to count it. Uh, last year, shortly after Play Bigger came out. And I made a decision to uh, dedicate the back half of my life to trying to make a difference to uh, inspire and incite people to design legendary lives and legendary businesses. All right, so I wanna, I wanna, we're going to get into Play Bigger and that whole philosophy, but a couple of things. First, wh- when you talk about the entrepreneurship being an all-time low, of course, when you're over in Europe, whereas I am, we tend to regard the United States and China, amongst other places, as sort of the beacons of entrepreneurship. And it made me think of another fact which I had heard, which is that mobility in America has also decreased dramatically from before. Do you think that's linked? You know, I'm not sure. I'm not a sociologist. Um, They don't have the truth necessarily either. (laughs) (laughs) What I do know, you know, as a kid mentor growing up, I grew up in Montreal, Canada, and to say we grew up modestly is, you know, uh, maybe a little bit of an understatement, but um, I grew up in a very modest um, blue-collar family, but a very loving family. But because of our blue-collar kind of nature, it never occurred to me, mentor, that I would be able to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, I would, my friends as a young, you know, kid would talk about wanting to go to, you know, London or New York or, mm-hmm. you know, p- pick whatever place that kids dream of. and. I didn't think ever about that because I made an unconscious, you know, sort of decision in my mind that 
I was never going to be able to go anywhere because that required money mm. that, you know, I was never going to have. And so it never even occurred to me that I'd ever go to New York. Right. And so um, the mindset you have sort of can limit where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes me so think- I guess I guess what happened for me over time is I started to travel, um, you know, with all the shit going on right now in the United States. It really makes me wonder, uh, do all these, do, do, how many of these racists have passports? Hmm. Because yeah. all you have to do is go anywhere. All you have to do is meet somebody from another culture, another religion, another way of life that for whatever reason you might be uh, uh, hesitant, so to speak, about. And um, have a beer with them. Have yeah. a coffee with them. Ask them what they care about in their life. And you immediately begin to understand that whether you're talking to somebody in um, you know Kuala Lumpur or whether you're talking to somebody in Kansas, we all care about the same shit. Yeah, it's it's crazy this world. Um, so, Christopher, you um, you your your career up until writing the book and well, and joining your cast of pirates, which I love the way you describe in the book as a as a band. So you're the 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 rock star marketer uh, as they describe it in the in the uh, in the book. You were a CMO a number of times and. I, I, you know, in your position now, with your hindsight, uh, looking at the role of CMO, it's always been described as one of the most dangerous, volatile, life-threatening uh, positions to have in a company. Do you think that that's, uh, that's still the case? And what, what does it take to succeed as a CMO today? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so uh, the data says that CMOs have, you know, live about two and a half years, right? That's mm-hmm. sort of at least the stuff that I see coming yeah. out of headhunters and, and others that research longevity of CMOs. So here's the first thing I tell you as a three-time public company CMO to, to other CMOs. Get out of the fucking marketing ghetto. Mm-hmm. You know, CMOs or marketers, uh, uh, and look, this is going to sound overly harsh, so I don't mean it as harsh as it might sound, but... CMOs make some dumb fucking mistakes. When you join a company, the worst thing you can do in your first quarter is to change the fucking logo. Right. Right. So my agency told me to do it. Pardon me? My agency tells me to do it. I've got to put my stamp on things. hundred days to change the world. I I think CMOs can get confused as to what their job is. I think our job as CMOs is to um, figure out how to mobilize the company to design and dominate a category that matters. Because if you do that, uh, you're going to be the category king and you're going to take two-thirds of the economics and you're going to create massive value in your company. And if you don't, um, you're going to be um, the rat on the Titanic fighting for table scraps as the boat goes down. Because we know, and I can walk you through how we got there, we did uh, three-quarters of a million dollars worth of data science research for our book, Play Bigger. And we know, at least in the tech space, and more and more markets are behaving like tech categories, that one company gets two-thirds of the economics. Seventy-six percent of the total market cap in the category goes to the leader, the category king. And so whether we like it or not, for the most part, in most categories, we are playing a winner-take-all game. And so the question becomes, to get back to being a CMO, how do you design and dominate a category that matters? And if you can be a CMO that um, is a category designer as a CMO who understands how to lead the company through that, then you're a legendary CMO. If you're a CMO who makes the unconscious, unquestioned mistake to attack existing markets with your existing products, brands, and services, 
then you have made a, um, whether you realize it or not, a choice to compete for share. And that's not what legends do. Legendary marketers design their own categories. Steve Jobs did not compete. And so CMOs who are category designers who build the skill called how do we design and dominate a category that matters and takes two thirds and take two thirds of the economics. Those CMOs are in massive uh, demand right now. We recently had Jennifer Johnson, the CMO who I believe is changing the definition of what a tech CMO is on Legends and Losers. And she told me on her cur- on her current job search that the number one thing tech companies and headhunters are looking for in Silicon Valley are CMOs who are category designers. All right, so what the let's say the Cutler School of Marketing might have said that if you're leading the your industry or your market, your role is to grow the market, not your share. How different is that? Uh, it, it, it's not. However, I mean, don't be confused. Um, your share is going to go up as you grow the category if you're the category designer. Right. Okay. So I was just. I guess maybe the it's the equation or the making market and uh, category the same same concept. All right. So when and the other question I have for you, economics. You described that. It sounded like you're equating that to market cap. Is that is that a fair uh, equation or what happens when you're a private company? Uh, well, then it's it's called valuation. So regardless of how you measure it, um, inter, I believe fundamentally the job of every executive is to increase the value of the company over time and to create what my friends at Sequoia Capital call enduring value. Right. Well, the reason why I bring that up is that in, in my next book, I'm exploring this notion of ownership. And uh, the idea of a stock market or publicly traded company or one that's owned by private equity, there's a kind of pressure which kind of goes against enduring value debate. Well, yes and no. We all face pressure. So, for example, we know that uh, in tech categories, from time of launch, a company has six to ten years to either become the category king or get fucked. That's what's going to happen. And I can tell you why we know that. Um, uh, the HBR published a story based on our research about this. It's called the IPO sweet spot. And essentially, the research that we did, Minter, says that in tech, the companies that create enduring value as category kings get public within six to ten years. Companies that get public earlier than uh, six to ten years of, of their founding. Companies that go public earlier than that uh, destroy, uh, uh, destroy value, and companies that go public later than that tread water. Um, and, and I can explain to you why that is. We, the net of it is we think that um, that's how long, six to ten years, is how long it takes to get a category of consequence to tip. And so if the category tips as you're emerging as the king, to your point, you ride that, the, the, the water that's rising, you ride that up. Okay? And so... That, that's what we really believe the game is today. Um, so if we want to build a legendary company and create enduring value in a new category, we have six to ten years to get that done. And so we have pressure to do that. Now, does that mean you should do stupid things in your business? Does that mean you should be assholes like Uber? Does that mean you should be evil like Volkswagen? Absolutely not. 
you know, uh, one of my heroes uh, is is Jeff Bezos. And how can he not be? You, I could argue today that um, he's the greatest category designer in business right now. Mm-hmm. And and this is a guy who says to Wall Street, hey, listen, we're going to go build some new shit that wasn't in our plan. As a result, we're going to materially increase R&D spend and we're going to tank earnings per share materially for the next I don't know how fucking long. See ya. And then the stock takes a 25% hit. Everybody goes mental. He gives the Wall Street the finger and he goes forward with his strategic plan. And so it's not about the pressure. It's our, about our ability to cling to our true north regardless of the pressure yeah. and execute our strategy for making a difference in business, making a difference in the world by designing a legendary product, company, and category at the same time. And it's really – it's about the courage to be legendary. Yeah. Well, and to your point, Christopher, my, my, my new manuscript really does talk about true north and the where I dig into this notion, so aside from the ownership model that you have, the presence of the founder. And so when when you have a I call a mercenary CEO coming in, there are chances of following true north and and being able to do that regardless of the pressure diminishes materially. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's a lot of talk about this in Silicon Valley. And if you talk to the most legendary venture capitalists, what they tell you is that, uh, Minter, you're absolutely correct, that something changes in a very material way when that founder is no longer engaged. doesn't necessarily mean the founder must be the chief executive. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, a great example, of course, is Microsoft. Mm-hmm. The minute Gates is not the chief executive and the keys get handed to bomber Microsoft goes into a 15 year nuclear winter where it does no um, category designer innovation. It, it is not designed and dominated a new category of consequence since Gates left. And that's because Gates got product company and category right multiple times. And bomber was confused that he could compete on, on price. He could compete on features. And as a result, he literally torched billions. They spent $10 billion on Bing alone. And that $10 billion in Bomber's words, quote, feature war produced nothing for Microsoft. And as we well know, the market cap of Google and the market share that they enjoy in search uh, have gone up in, since the, quote, feature war led by Bomber. Right. So let's say, take, take me through how to, if I'm a CMO coming in and I just arrived, what, what are the kinds of things that I need to be doing in order to be able to set my new category? How do I evaluate that? I mean, you know, I used to sell soaps and suds uh, at L'Oreal. And you do have very fantastic looking hair, I might tell you. <laughs> they were seen As a man with no hair, I have some minter, a little minter hair envy, although I'm very happy and com- you know comfortable in my baldness. But I must say... You have excellent hair, Mitch. That's very kind. <laughs> I, I'm flouting it for now. It's part of my old my old uh, heritage. But um, yeah. So how how does one? What, what are the mechanics? What what do you need to do in order to be able to figure this out? Because it's it's obviously not going to be sitting there on a plate for you. So you need to go out there and find it. Yeah. The first thing I would share is uh, when we're going to go figure out how we as a company design and dominate a category of our choosing. Um, it's the one mistake CMOs make is by treating this as a marketing exercise. It's a company exercise. Mm-hmm. So I would argue that that 
category and the marketing things required to make that category happen um, are one third of the things that need to take place. So what we know is legends prosecute the magic triangle. They get product, company, and category right at the right point in time. So the first thing I would share with you is if you believe that, then at a high level, um, designing and dominating category is, is a third of what it's required. Mm-hmm. And so the first aha as a CMO is, hey, this is a company initiative. Just like our business model and our go-to-market model and our channels and ecosystem, that's a company initiative. It's not just the VP of sales um, uh, by way of example. At a high level, our product strategy, um, uh, are we going to be a subscription model? Are we, you know, how are we going to sell this stuff? Our pricing strategy, sure, the head of products or product marketing or management is going to make a lot of those decisions. But again, those are company strategic things at the highest level. So can I just so, ask, Christopher, yeah, the, of the three, do you give them equal weighting? So Because the company one is a lot larger in scope than just product and service, which you're serving. It really sounds much bigger, vaster. But do you feel that they have equal weighting? I do because um, very rarely, although it does happen, um, can you build a category king without getting all three right? And what I will tell you is, and this may sound very controversial, but I can give you some examples. There are cases of category kings where they get product slash service right, where they get category right. And they fuck up completely on company, and they still become category kings. They're like, would you, would you, would the U word sound right in that? In that, yeah, scenario? Uber is a great example. Lululemon's another great example. Um, and I can, we can unpack why if you want. But what I know is, equal weighting is the right headset. And uh, I just published a blog about how the fact that your category is your single point of failure. So you can even have a shitty product, but if you get category right, um, you could build a multi-billion dollar business. Great example of that is, a, now that's not a shitty product, but certainly a shitty tasting product, five-hour energy, mm-hmm. right? It fulfills on its value proposition. Of it gives you that perk up with no crash afterwards. So for on that dimension as a product, it's legendary, but I don't know about you, but the first time I tasted this thing, I thought like a monkey pissed in a jar, <laughs> right? And and so the product has to, you know, there's this phrase in tech we've heard over the last several years called minimum viable product. MVP. Well, that notion in the absence of a category is missing something. So it's really minimum viable product in the context of category design. So in the case of five hour energy, to be specific, um, the category design was to create a new type of drink that was distinct from an energy drink and a coffee, et cetera. And um, uh, of course the, the promise was the one I just mentioned. And so they, they got minimum viable product in the context of the category point of view they had. And when that happens, ba-boom, a $2 mm-hmm. billion dollar category shows up and you have a company who's the only company in history to have five product SKUs at the Walmart checkout. So the way I, I listen to this and digest it is the old-fashioned marketer in me says that the, the product, service is, you know, it's obvious, one of the four Ps. The whole, I want to call it clusterfuck of company, which includes soft stuff like culture and management skills and HR, whatever, as well as distribution model, business model, and so on. And then there's the other one, category. And, and uh, where I'm going with this is that it, it, if, if I'm Red Bull, 
Some people might think my category is energy drinks, but they've decided that they're a media company. That's the category they're in, or at least that's the way I describe it. How, how does, so A, is that degree? And B, if I'm in an industry and how do I, because that's a third of everything in my success, I better spend a lot of time thinking about whether I'm a media company or I'm selling energy drinks. So I don't know what uh, Red Bull thinks they are, but they're a fucking energy drink company. <laughs> well, did you and, describe themselves as a media company? Well, then, then they're very, very confused. Um, now, what they are doing legendarily is they're using a uh, very thoughtful, incredibly creative, innovative, if you will, media strategy to market a point of view. And that point of view is actually what drives the design of the category and is the primary contributor to their dominance of it. So they're doing smart things. They may be thinking about it in stupid ways, but they're not a media company. Fucking Disney's a media company, right? The other thing that's very interesting is people get confused that because we have a powerful brand, we can make it mean anything. Google, one of the most legendary brands in history, when they go to attack Facebook, get crushed with Google+. You know, Google+, and Apple stores have one thing in common, which is they've scaled empty, right? And so um, uh, um, Google's brand is only valuable because they're the category king in search. When they move outside of search and they don't prosecute the magic triangle, instead they get confused that it's their products that are the source of their uh, category leadership. They fuck up well, because Facebook is the category king. And so their brand doesn't do anything for them, and they fail miserably with Google+. There is a possible school of thought that a Google or an Alphabet is so capable of attracting sufficient talent that they are able to go under Alphabet, explore other things, and that the culture of innovation, the ability to pivot, fast-fail, is, is, is part of the culture C company, a part, you know, the three in your triangle as opposed to the category. So that's all cool. It's very, very cool. And, you know, there are legendary companies like Corning who've been around for over 150 years, you know, who, who, who uh, are able to do that over time. Mm -hmm. And one of the stories we tell in Play Bigger is uh, how they created uh, what today we, uh, we know as Gorilla Glass, the glass that's on our smartphones. Um, you know, they created that technology You'll excuse me for not remembering exactly, but roughly 40 years ago. And so there's a big, big place in the world of business, of course, for ongoing. You know, the, the, if you think about R&D, the R, right, doing real research, uh, looking for true breakthrough technologies and, and, and so forth. However, technologies and products don't speak for themselves. And. Nobody buys a drill. They buy holes. And everybody thinks because they invented some new carbodingulation drill and they're going to have a, essentially a features conversation about drills and drill bits that the world is going to connect a fucking uh, Wikipedia page list of features to a problem that matters. So I believe into the biggest problem in business today is too many solutions without a problem. Mm -hmm. 
One of the things you talk about a lot, Christopher, is legendary. I, I would love to you just to hear you describe what makes legendary. What's your definition of legendary? Um, so in a business context, um, it's a individual and or a company that's able to uh, proactively create its place in the world, be distinct, own that place, and be the person and or company and or brand that all others who come afterwards get compared to. All right. See, so it doesn't necessarily mean that they are doing good. Well, the facts are the goods a value judgment. Right. So I, I, I'm absolutely love to engage with you about that. And what we know is there are evil companies that can become category kings. And so um, it's not a requirement. Now, that doesn't make it right. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but somehow in the last six to nine months, Minter, there's been a lot in my world of people having conversations about what is the real role of companies in our world. Mm -hmm. And that's a conversation I love to have. I think it's an incredibly important conversation. Yeah. But just because uh, you fund the planting of a tree for every sale that happens over your website doesn't make you a category king. That might make you feel good about planting more trees, and that could very well be a very important thing to go fuck do. But, um, you know, you have a company that was, that is an evil company in Volkswagen that has very dominant positions. You have a company in Uber, which has clearly done horrible and evil things that designed and dominated one of the most important new categories in our world. And so um, uh, you don't have to have the core values of Patagonia mm. to become a category king. I would like it if you did. Right. Another Montreal. <laughs> and, and I think it's going to become more important over time, particularly from a uh, ability to attract and retain the best talent. Right. But the reality is um, many assholes have built category kings. I'm well, not advocating it. I'm just telling you that's what has happened and would you not say in the same breath that whether it's venture capital private equity or the stock market in general they don't really have a view on whether you're nice or good or non-evil as long as you're making me money that's fine uh so my my look i, I don't know there there if, if i'm a fund manager uh on, on wall street that's probably in my headset. I could give a shit as long as we're making money. I, I, I don't know. I don't, want to, I don't want to speak for fund managers. Here's what I do know because I've spent the better part of 25 years in Silicon Valley working with venture-backed startups. There's some meaningful percentage, who knows, of venture capitalists who that, that would be true about, and, and they might not put it as bluntly, but <laughs> that's true. We're in a business. Listen, don't be confused. We get money from LPs, and our job is to invest that money and yeah. make a lot of fucking money for mm -hmm. those LPs and take our cut. That's yeah. what we fucking do. Yeah. And so I think there's a lot of VCs who would take that. And you know what? God bless them. That's capitalism. That's our system. It's pure. There's, I don't, I, you know, if that's your motivation, fucking A. As a matter of fact, a venture capitalist who didn't want to make money, I wouldn't invest with. That's true. Now, that said, um, we've been fortunate enough recently, Minter, to have um, Patrick Grady and Matt Miller, two of the newer partners at Sequoia Capital on Legends and Losers. And we also had Blair Shane on a separate episode, the partner and, and chief marketing officer of Sequoia Capital. And you may know Sequoia is um, uh, absolutely one of the top, top uh, tech venture capitalists in history. And I would argue that their founder, Don Valentine, is one of the principal category designers and creators of tech venture capital. Mm -hmm. Now, that said, here's what they tell me. 
they're not going to invest in a business just to make money. They're up to something greater. As a matter of fact, I think it's Pat Grady who says it on Legends and Losers that they will turn down deals that they think are good deals, but aren't really forwarding um, things in the world in the way in which they would like to see it. So they, they are looking for you know, they, they get a lot of university endowment money and they are looking for entrepreneurs who can create legendary category king companies while making a difference in the world. And if you look at their track record, you know, Apple, Cisco. Oracle, uh, Google, uh, Palo Alto Networks, WhatsApp, the largest uh, ever private uh, transaction in American history, $22 billion uh, acquisition by Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Their track record is extraordinary. And if you look at a lot of those companies, those companies, yes, they produced huge economic returns, uh, you know, some of the greatest sure. in venture history. But I would argue most of those companies have also made a very big difference in the world one way right. or another. And so... It really depends on where the VC puts true north. Yeah, that's that's my thesis, Christopher. So I love it. So a lot. I I I mean, I, I feel like we could go on for. Gosh, we we didn't even talk about the role of companies in society. But let's. My last question for you, um, just before we close off, is how do you see marketing evolving, um, or what would you, you know? You mentioned before, obviously, get out of your your ivory tower, and marketing isn't just for you; it's for everybody to make the business together. But how do you, where do you see the best leverage and opportunities in marketing going forward, let's say, over the next 24, 36 months? So the greatest marketers don't market in markets. They create markets. So uh, by way of example, um, Reed Hastings decided that he wasn't going to compete against Blockbuster when he founded Netflix. He moved the space from the way it was to the way he wanted it to be. He, like Steve Jobs, like Sarah Blakely at Spanx, like Henry Ford, taught the world to think about a problem and therefore a solution in a completely different way. And once the world at scale got that, or that is to say, agreed with these legends about the problem, they stopped doing what they were doing and they started doing something else. So so legends don't get confused about having some stupid uh, feature comparison dialogue and compete with for share. The legends in Silicon Valley, the VC legends, say we invest in zero billion dollar markets if the market exists it's too late okay mm -hmm. and so so reed hastings teaches the world hey stop driving to the fucking video store where they probably don't have your video and then you and your wife and family now have to argue about what our second choice is and maybe right. they do and maybe they don't have that and we talk to this sweaty zitty kid behind the counter and, chewing gum. and we pay the fucking late fee and all that right yeah. and reed says hey don't do that Sit on your couch and go to a website yeah. and tell us what you want and we'll send it to you originally over the mail. And of course, today we stream it on the web. And so what literally ends up happening is the world stops driving to Blockbuster and starts firing their web browser at Netflix.com. And the rest, of course, is history. And so my point is legends do not want to be compared to anyone else. They teach the world to think the way they want them to. And so. Uh, to get back to your question, legendary CMOs condition the market. It's the distinction between creating pull and driving push. Yeah. 
Everybody in business says, oh, what's our go-to-market strategy? Right. we got to bring this product to market. Do some more, buy some more ads, push some more stuff out. And it's, it's not about going to market. It's about making the market come to you. And that's, what, that's why uh, legendary CMOs today are category designers. They teach the world to think. Well, the, the world, the, the, the kind of the world I operate in, I think that some huge percentage are, are not at all in that mindset. So I'm, I'm going to have to believe that they need to, to read Play Bigger in a hurry. You know, here's what I would share with those people, and I, I understand. Um, virtually all, if maybe say most, business people make an unconscious, unquestioned choice to compete for share in an existing market with a we are better than them strategy. Mm-hmm. And what I'm here to tell you, after spending tons of money and my entire life studying this exact topic, that's not what Henry Ford did. That's not what Steve Jobs did. They did the opposite. They created a unique place for themselves. As a matter of fact, our greatest innovators outside of business did that. Mm. Pablo Picasso's greatest design is not a painting. It's a category called cubism. Mm -hmm. See, because when he starts doing that shit with the big colors and the cubes and he takes the boob and he sticks it where the eye should be and vice versa and all that, the first impression is, oh, that is clearly the work of a retarded alcoholic four-year-old, right? And he says, no, that's where you're wrong. It's cubism. It's a new genre, a new style. Translation, a new category of mm. art. So for Picasso to become the most famous painter in the world, it literally required a new definition of what art is, if you will, a new lens to look at art. And once you accept the lens, he's a genius. And if you don't have the lens, he's, he, he's a drunken four-year-old. And so my point is, he's a category designer. And my question to all marketers is, who would you rather be, Pablo Picasso or the 37th Cubist artist? Who would you rather be, Bob Marley or the 87th reggae band, etc., etc.? Who would you rather be, Henry Ford or everyone else? Steve Jobs or everyone else? It, it That's does, what's going on here. It does sound like uh, there's a, a stronger need for higher, A, creativity, and B, a tolerance for, let's call it, bad wind or being called a four-year-old, you know, you're, uh, including failure. Yeah, it takes courage to be legendary. However, here's the thing I'm actually telling you. It takes more courage to an attack an existing market with a, a we're better than them strategy. Because what I'm telling you is <laughs> you're going to fail and you're going to light billions of dollars. Look, Pepsi has proven this beyond a shadow of a doubt, right? They will never catch Coke. And Microsoft has proven this to us. I'll tell you one of my favorite stories about this recently, right? So Microsoft, so, so Jobs creates the tablet category, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and Microsoft does a, uh, a, a fast follower strategy with the Surface, yes? Yeah. Well, they spend zillions sponsoring the NFL, and anybody in America understands what that, what that means, National right? Football League. One day last season, there's a problem with the, uh, the Surface uh, products during the broadcast. And they use them 
you know, to do the John Madden shit, right? The X's and O's and all that stuff. Mm, sure. And 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 one of the commentators on Monday Night Football says, "Oh well, Jim, unfortunately, we can't break that play down for you because these uh, Microsoft Surface iPads aren't working." <laughs> <laughs> Love it. And so, if if Microsoft couldn't catch Bing with a ten, or couldn't catch Google with a ten billion dollar investment, mm. if, if 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 no matter what they try to do with their marketing, they Apple is the is the, is the is the reference point um, uh, for what a tablet should be. The the evidence is clear: attacking existing markets with a we're better, faster, cheaper than them is a suicide mission because. The reference point is always the category king. Mm -hmm. In other words, the unspoken is louder than the spoken. And so whenever Microsoft says, hey, look, the new Surface, it does this, it does that, it has this new thing, blah, blah, blah. The, un the, the context for their dialogue with the world about their product is the context that Apple created for the category. And until you create a new context, that is to say cubism, you're going to get compared to the category game. All right, and so that's why people fail over and over and over again. And generally, they attribute it to product innovation. Oh, well, you know, Microsoft had, had, didn't have the right features. Features don't matter. So it makes me think, rethink, Christopher, is the learning I'm going to take away from this, is that I've always, in my L'Oreal days, we used to, I, I've always promoted the idea that it's about being either the first, the best, or the only. And it seems like the one I need to be removing from that is best. The the first or the only. You need to be the, well, you need to be viewed as the um, the category leader. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that means the first or at least, or, no. the, or the only, at least because you, if you're only, you're dominant. Well, you become only over time. That's so it. Facebook has no competitor. But when they start, they have a zillion competitors. Mm -hmm. So the, the the specifics, the rigor of this thinking is is important. Um, first mover advantage is a fantasy. It's the first company to get product company and category right. Mm -hmm. Try was on fire. Mm -hmm. Most people would argue that MySpace was already the category king. Mm -hmm. However. Facebook redesigned the category around a different problem, yeah. right? The problem Zuck defined, and he states it in his Time Magazine Man of the Year article, is he wanted to do something different, and I use that word on purpose, Minter, than what MySpace was doing. He wanted to try to replicate digitally the personal relationships we have, if you will, physically, mm -hmm. And by having some level of integrity around if it was possible to connect people um, and, and create true relationships like we do in person mm -hmm. in an electronic way, that we'd have something very unique and powerful. He wasn't trying to do email 2.0, and he sure as hell wasn't trying to figure out how to get a better media player uh, mm -hmm. and compete, compete for you know features uh, against MySpace, who was obviously very focused on music at the mm -hmm. time. And so, so he completely reimagined the problem. And as a result, redesigned the category. And when the world agreed with them, that is to say, we don't want a lot of bullshit and all these people we don't know that we have on our MySpace page. We actually want to be connected to people we care about. And he created the environment from that. The world shifted from what MySpace's definition of what a social media network was to 
what Zucks was, and of course the rest is history. And it turns out that's what legendary category designers and innovators do. They don't attack head on. They teach the world to think the way they want them to, and when the world agrees with them, pa-pow. And that's true for dentists and realtors and for people who raised $200 million on Sand Hill Road trying to build the next Google. Beautiful. Christopher, how can someone uh, best, what's the best way to the, for them to get in touch with you or just follow you and, and surely tell me, what? give me a plug on your book. Uh, the best place to find me is legendsandlosers.com and every other way in which you might want to connect with me, you can find from there. Um, and same thing for the book. There's a section about Play Bigger on legendsandlosers.com and um, hopefully it gives you whatever that you need. And if it doesn't, you know, just send me an email, Christopher at legendsandlosers.com and we'll take care of you. Beautiful. Christopher, I anticipated as much having a pleasure speaking with you and get this horrible feeling that can we just do this another time, a few more times? But I may, <laughs> well, we can if you want, Mister. Right. Listen, and and uh, and another uh, thanks and uh, great that uh, you are such a, a a legendary podcaster as well, speaking about the good medium of podcaster and how we can make a difference uh, with podcasting. Yeah, you know, as you and I were talking a little bit earlier, our medium allows for something that I believe no other medium allows for which is the ability to create a platform for authentic uh, dialogue that matters. Um, this morning, we dropped an episode of Legends and Losers with uh, sitting L.A. Superior Court judge in Compton, California, Kelvin Filer. And there's no other way, there's no other medium where you can experience an hour and a half long dialogue with a sitting Superior Court judge that ranges from his career, uh, how he grew up, his challenges as an alcoholic and how he overcame them, his, 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 his love of karaoke and what it's like to oversee a murder trial and to listen to victim impact statements as he goes forward to sentence a murderer to jail. There's no other way you can have that conversation. There's no you, you're not going to you wouldn't read it because it would be way too long. The New York Times wouldn't publish it. And if you put it on medium, it would just look like the world's largest blog and no one would read it if it was transcribed. There's no fuck TV show where you can go do that because there's no TV. There's nobody's going to pay for an hour and a half long TV conversation. Right. And so the reality is, if you're somebody who craves real, authentic dialogue, with people who are doing incredible things, podcasting is the place to get that. No matter what your area of interest is, there's some legendary expert in the world sharing her knowledge, probably for free, on a podcast. Mm -hmm. And so our medium allows for something that no other medium has uh, heretofore. And I think that's incredibly exciting. I got into podcasting because I'm a podcasting super consumer. I love them. I'm addicted to them. For that reason, because I think in a world of Kardashians and 140 character tweets, there's an opposite and equal reaction, which is as more bullshit gets spewed into our world, many of us crave real things with real people that aren't fucking bullshit. And podcasting is the most powerful way I know of to expose long form, meaningful uh, dialogue about shit like that. Beautiful, Christopher. Thanks for being on the show. Minter, it's been my pleasure. Be legendary, my friend. Will do.
Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, that's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray. questions we've got answers business leadership ownership and sales can be challenging tune into the accelerate your business growth podcast to learn from the world's experts 
Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.